Comment on the CASP, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I work on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm also writing a book about it. Now, this month, January 2021, and indeed this year, there's likely to be an event as mind-boggling as the storming of the U.S. Capitol by Trump supporters. This podcast focuses on how hostile countries try to undermine liberal democracies, but in this case, Americans undermine their democracy all by themselves. At least that's the picture so far. Even if they had help, they did a lot of it themselves. The details are well known now by anyone who has had even the most rudimentary access to news over the past couple of weeks, and that is that President Trump has been impeached over this assault and that five people are dead so far, including a police officer who was savagely beaten by the mob. And the perhaps most frightening aspect about this whole affair is that the participants in the assault seem to have acted on the genuine belief that Donald Trump won the election. Knowing that he lost and wanting to change the outcome is one thing, but being convinced that he won is very different. And it's different because it means disinformation works. It only needs to work on a small group of people. And that small group of people can cause enormous damage, as we saw at the Capitol. And the event has already severely harmed America's standing in the world. For example, a Kenyan newspaper, the day after the assault, had on its front page a big picture of, of the assault, along with the headline, Who is the Banana Republic now? There's nobody more qualified to discuss the effects of this information than Thomas Hendrik Ilves, who so has spent a lifetime or a whole career dealing with various aspects of disinformation, including as president of Estonia, where he headed a country subjected to disinformation, but in a previous life, working for Radio Free Europe, which tried to counter Soviet disinformation. And of course, prior to that, as a psychologist, and that's something that I think it's underestimated in this whole conversation, the effect on people's psychology when they consume disinformation. And it leads to, as we saw, the belief that they are not acting on disinformation at all, but on information. So, President Ilves, you have watched various incarnations of disinformation over decades. What is different this time around? What makes it so poisonous or so violent? Well, I think it, it has much more to do with technology than anything else. If we look at the history of disinformation, it was there, but it because of transmission problems, it didn't wasn't very effective. I mean, it was effective over time. I mean, the classic case of the Soviet disinformation action infection, which was to blame the CIA for starting AIDS in order to kill black people, which was planted in a originally it was written by the Soves. It was planted in a provincial Communist Party newspaper in India. And then I took a while and then it was kind of went up into more slightly more mainstream media. And it really took months and months to get to the to mainstream Western media. And even there, not in the most reputable places. But Infection took a while and it was never really taken seriously because by a broad mass, because it seemed too bizarre, and because you had standard, sort of trustworthy sources of information. I mean, BBC, 
Deutsche Welle, I mean, New York Times, Financial Times, Frankfurt, the Allgemeine Zeitung. I mean, you had some kind of editorial authority and said, this is nonsense. I think Spiegel fell for it, but <laughs> but that, <laughs> leave that aside. But again, with the disinformation, I mean, we in Estonia had been subjected to this for a long time, ever since, even before we started our independence move here, and especially after 1991, when we reestablished independence that we had had earlier. But it never really made it anywhere. Again, I mean, this was, it had even less traction than the AIDS story, because it was kind of local. The biggest problem I had in the early 90s as Estonia's first post-independence ambassador in Washington was dealing with State Department officials who were all in the sort of Gorbachev, Clinton era, or Yeltsin, Yeltsin, Clinton, Druzhba, Naroda, friendship of the people mindset. And so they actually did take seriously things that the Russians said. And I had to spend a lot of time showing that those things were lies. I don't think we have time to go into it, but some of it's pretty funny, some of the things that were invented. But anyway, 2016, you had the Brexit referendum, and already there, even though the material is kept secret by Her Majesty's government, because we suspect there's too much embarrassing material there. And people like Aaron Banks and other people were working with the Russians. Some of the conservatives were. And there already, there was a lot of Russian disinformation being spread. And then the U.S. election the same year. U.S. I mean, there you already are seeing this is a lot of and there it got quite sophisticated. For example, two Facebook pages were set up ostensibly by Americans. One was a group of anti-Islamists. I mean, people were saying we need to keep America, blah, 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 and not Muslim. And then another one, which was sort of promoting tolerance towards Muslims. And these were both set up by the Petersburg trolling center known as the Internet Research Agency, which they call themselves that. And they set up these fake pages, ended up with thousands and thousands of Americans who didn't understand they were Russians. They had administrators who were Americans who were simply volunteered to do it. So they were they were unwitting idiots. And they set up a demonstration to take place at the same place at the same time for each group in the hope that this would lead to a physical confrontation. Now, I think that this is a I mean, nothing happened. Fortunately, people showed up, but it did not turn into a confrontation as opposed to now. Right. But. But so you're saying that's the precursor of what happened yeah, this I'm giving this you January. the background to all of this, right? And so, I mean, it has all of the characteristics of what we see now, except by now, we don't need the Russians. And that's Before exactly we... the problem. We are doing it all ourselves. And so, I mean, you can see a transition from people repeating Russian disinformation in 2016 to today when... With due to social media, you can just make this stuff up. You don't need any Russians to inject anything, though I'm sure they still do. I mean, the old days, I mean, in the old days, you know, five years ago, you'd get these badly written sort of non-native English things, you know, is proud American 
patriot in Texas here 200 years. You know, I mean, like something like that. Yeah. Right? I mean, you read it, you go, this is not written by someone whose family extends back to 200 <laughs> years, right? You can't hear the accent, but the, the grammar already showed. Yeah. No articles and all that stuff. So we're, we're on our own now, everyone. We create our own disinformation. And then there are people who make it up. Now, that's part of the background. So, but you end up, all these things are bubbles. And people in there believe it, believe what, they, what, what is, goes on. And it's constantly being reinforced by other people. And this is different from 1984, where the classic bit about 1984, the party told you to believe and you yep. had to believe. You, no, one, no one is telling you to believe it. You, you're looking for external validation of your beliefs from other people. And you reinforce each other. And so you have this enormous sort of, I mean, you have this circular belief system that all of the other fools who believe that the earth is flat are telling each other the earth is flat and you don't look at globes. Yeah. But the point you made just now is the, the central point, because in the past, during the Cold War, people knew what was disinformation because what came from what reached us in Western Europe from the Warsaw Pact was was so clumsy. And yes, the AIDS rumor is still around. That was their most successful one. But other than that, you knew that it was disinformation because it was so clumsy. But today, as you said, we don't need Russian disinformation in the West. Ordinary citizens manufacture their own disinformation. And as you said, have this sort of circular group of people where where they validate the information. So now we're in a worse situation. Exactly. But with Donald Trump, you not only have this circular sort of craziness of people believing each other's insanity, but you have an authoritative source. You have the highest, at the highest level, the president of the United States says the election was stolen. Otherwise, you'd have a lot of people saying, I mean, a lot of crazy people would say, oh, the election was stolen. But now the president comes out. Yeah. And here, there's another circular kind of exchange, is that Trump reads something insane on the web, and then he repeats it. I mean, this happens repeatedly. I mean, he'll, he'll read some QAnon stuff or some really wacko thing on the internet, and then he'll come out and say it. So people are saying, lots yeah. of people are saying. And then you have all these people who maybe have not even heard about what lots of people are saying, which is completely untrue. They will say, see, the president said this. And that's how you end up in this kind of situation, which you had on the 6th of January, where you had people all claiming the election had been stolen. And then they claimed it was all the communist Chinese and that the machine, the voting machines were done by a but behind it was Hugo Chavez who yeah. was like been dead for eight years <laughs> and you have QAnon which is an entirely huge conspiracy theory that has supporters like the former national security advisor Michael Flynn so we're in a real mess <laughs> but, but what seems to have happened too is I mean I remember Soviet disinformation. I mean, it's, it's something you read and you, you didn't pay particular attention to it, first of all, as, as we said, because it was clumsy, and second of all, because it didn't really matter to you that much. But what seems to be happening now is that disinformation is doing something to people's heads so that they think 
they are acting on real information. And they think they are staging a legitimate revolution, just like revolutions over the centuries that were really revolutions against unjust rule. And, and you can dispute how unjust or the rule was and how just the revolution was, but at least it was a revolution in each case against a real set of problems. Whereas now, what we've seen in the US is that these people believe they are staging a revolution and it's, it's based completely on disinformation, but they don't realize that that's the case. What has happened with the heads or minds of people who are so convinced that they are acting on, on real information? Well, historically, those people end up being slaughtered, ultimately. <laughs> I'm saying that you have the Albigensian heresy, you had the children's crusades, you know, going, the children all going off to fight. They die. Well, I mean, the Albigensian heresy, you know, basically the Catholic Church just killed everyone who was part of it, right? I mean, these are not nice things that happen, but you do see this group insanity developing. You know, the children's crusade, they had a lot less information. It was just that they went along with this kind of, I don't know what you'd even call it, but it's a kind of mass hysteria. You have, you have Jonestown, right? Yeah. Where people reinforce each other's delusions. And then they all go and, you know, they all take Kool-Aid and die. I mean, this is a sort of mass hysteria is amplified in the era of social media and lies together as a toxic mix. Now, we'll see what happens. We're in a new experiment because in the past week after January 6th, you see that the social media companies have kicked off Donald Trump. Kontakte, which is the Russian Facebook, has, has had a 25% jump in, in <laughs> membership in the last week. I mean, which is like the only place you can go to, right? Well, I guess you can go to WeChat, too, or Weibo, Weibo or something. But the fact that they're not going on Weibo, but they're going on Kontakte is, I think, is indicative of something. But, you know, Donald Trump is off all of those things. Now, that's, there's a whole different issue about the ethics of that. But that's not for today. All I'm saying is that you can see that it has really cut back on the amount of information. And as a counterweight to Twitter, which was banning fake news or labeling false statements by Trump as, you know, this is not true under his tweets. They created their own sort of hard right of center, unmonitored, parallel Twitter called Parler or Parler, as most Americans pronounce it. I mean, it's an American thing. And so what happened was that there was so much hatred on there, so much incitement that, I mean, and it's a fundamentally right, hard right page with millions of people on it. And they were shut down. The hosting companies with Amazon said, we will no longer host you. So they shut down. When they shut down, they shut down their security side too. So suddenly you have a huge, huge, huge repository of data that That's... was open to immediate hacking because there were no safeguards, which of course immediately happened. But the people who went and rioted in the capital, they were all using, well, largely using Parler or Parler, and they posted all their pictures of what they were doing, their selfies and so forth, on Parler. But then Parler got hacked. And so right now, the FBI's greatest resource 
for picking up everyone who is in the Capitol building is looking at the hacked parlor. Because there you can see all of the people who thought they were on a right-wing thing, which they were, but which lost its security elements and all the data were scraped. And so here we are, FBI has all of these people with their selfies. <laughs> if you're a revolutionary, you shouldn't be vain because you won't gain any advantages from it. You'll just expose yourself to authorities. Professional advice to any future revolutionaries. President Davis, I, I want to briefly discuss what can be done about this. So what, what we have now is a, a free-for-all in America, at least we have a free-for-all of information where the organizations providing information, both mainstream media or both media and social media, in many ways thrive on controversy, which is, from my perspective, my European perspective, is why we have this toxic mix where there is no little or no agreement even on what constitutes a fact. And if I can insert my personal opinion, I think there is a lot to be said for public service television, public service media, simply because it, it's not perfect, but it, it has some degree of trust and respectability built into it. Whereas with, with commercial media, of course, commercial media, including social media, they have to make money. And it's just much more tempting to engage in controversy or to fan controversy in that situation. Yeah, we do need it. But the major source of information for Americans is not television. It's Facebook. The largest single news source that 3% of Americans use is what? Other than social media, when it comes to television, the biggest news source of all stations is gets 3% of national viewership. And the one that gets that highest, which is 3%, is Fox. Everything else is below that. And nonetheless, I mean, whereas yeah, 80% of adults, or I don't know the exact number at this point, of adults in the United States are on Facebook. So the answer is regulation of social media. Is that inevitable now? Yes, that is inevitable. The question is well, how good a model it will be. And this is where there is, there is a lot of discussion. It's moved considerably forward because they were opposed to all kinds of content moderation as were many people in politics as well. And, and the idea of content moderation is very tricky. But I think after the past year, it's inevitable because we have seen you know, too much disinformation leading to people dying. Certainly, if you have a basically a terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol, we're dealing with something serious enough that the social media companies are going to have to back down, and they are doing that. And many people who in government and in the parliament who previously might have been opposed or were opposed to regulation now have changed their minds. I think it's clear to everybody that this free-for-all on social media can't continue. And, and yes, social media companies have obviously enjoyed 10 years or slightly longer of complete, near complete freedom, simply because it's a completely new sector. But if we look at utilities, as it were, in, in society, most of them are regulated. So it's, it's not even an ideological issue. It's simply an issue of, of managing society. Can I ask, to wrap this up, you have lived in a number of countries, Sweden, then the US, then 
West Germany. Canada, Germany, Estonia. <laughs> yeah. And what strikes me is that Estonia, which has been so bombarded by disinformation for such a long time, some of it should have stuck, but it has been relatively resilient, whereas the US, obviously much larger with maybe more adversarial political culture, but still, it has been much more shown itself to be much more vulnerable to disinformation, including of the domestic kind. What is it that makes Estonia more resilient? Well, it's not only Estonian, but I think it's just immunity built over time. I mean, if you've been getting it for 30 years, well, you go, okay. I mean, well, it's there. And for us, we don't go ballistic on news like the way the United States does. And and so there is, yeah, I mean, there's a fair bit of sort of conspiratorial paranoia, but it's not really taken seriously. And especially not when it comes from that in any way seems to have a a Russian fingerprint on it or footprint. I think that, yeah, I mean, here, we're no different in terms of, you know, domestic paranoia. We have all kinds of things. Oh, he's this and this. But when it comes to sort of foreign information, I mean, if it all smacks of something that is somehow Russia-related, it's like, yeah, it's not true. I mean, it works even the other ways that, I mean, serious things happen that Russia does. And if there's information about it, it's kind of like, well, I mean, it's Russia. You know, it's, yeah. you have to be careful about what we do with that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think that Russia, I mean, this is not only Estonia. I think this is a problem. So that Russia has, has been crying wolf for 100 years. I mean, basically since Lenin, right? So... Normal people don't take that country, what the country says or claims seriously. Yeah, there will always be your useful idiots who say, oh, my God, look at this there, what the Ukrainians are doing. But, you know, one of these days, something really bad is going to happen to Russia or someone will really commit a crime against Russia. And our reaction, and not I mean Estonians, but everyone's reaction, like, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, the classic case is the MH17 passenger flight from Amsterdam to Malaysia, which was shot down by the Russians. They were saying it was the CIA. The CIA filled the plane with 300 dead bodies. I mean, it's like, what? Yeah. So, I mean, when you hear Russian claims, if they ever say anything that's true, you will not believe it. Yeah. But your point about long exposure creating immunity is a very important one. I think that's an, an excellent point to end on because we are in the middle of COVID. And, and if you've had COVID, you develop immunity for some time. And so you're saying if you have been exposed to disinformation for, for a long time as, as a country, as a society, you develop some sort of immunity, which I think is a hopeful note to end on for especially Americans who are relatively new to, to this and maybe as a result in, in the worst throes of it. Well, we can take the two themes together and say, why doesn't anyone believe in the Sputnik vaccine? It's because the Russians claim it really works. And we've heard so many stupid Russian claims that I don't know anyone who would go and use, take a Russian vaccine, which may be a bad thing. Maybe, I mean, if it works, take the Russian vaccine. But it's like, I don't know anyone who's going to take a Russian vaccine, frankly, precisely because if you've been lying for 100 years, you've been lying about bad things. You're lying about good things. Why should I now start believing what the Russians say? I won't.
you're right. You're likely to share that sentiment with many, many people. Many thanks, President Ilves, and thank you all for listening. As always, please feel free to subscribe and comment on Apple and Spotify, and of course, to tweet me at Elizabeth Braw. And as always, thanks to our producers, Olivia Leslie and Annie Terrell. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who is doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.